Good morning, church. Whew. That's insane, man. Like what we just got to sing together. Like that's insane. Those are, those are profound and extraordinary sentences, truths put into words uh, that deeply relate to the journeys that each of us are on despite the fact that we are all on different journeys. Isn't that crazy? And, and, and I, was, I was just moved this morning as I was uh, processing and considering uh, even what Zach had shared with you all uh, of this idea that we are a people that have been awakened to the gospel of Jesus Christ and that as we find it becoming ordinary, there is always uh, further room to discover more extraordinary realities of this simple, singular truth of the gospel. The gospel, the story of God, the story of God and us, the story of his rescue, the story of his redemption, right? I mean, Paul would make the gospel as simple as Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus rose, we are saved, right? It's not complicated. Uh, but then Paul will write in Ephesians chapter two, verses one through 10, uh, added complexities to the gospel that we just heard Zach read this morning. And then of course, uh, Paul would write extraordinary complexities of the gospel in books like Romans and unpacking Ephesians and Galatians. And of course, then we would explore the gospels themselves, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and discover layers and layers of the wonder of the kingdom of God and what the gospel actually is. See, what I've discovered, what I think we are discovering along the way is that uh, as we further our pilgrimage through the wonders of God's word, it is not that we find different gospels, new gospels, new things to be enamored by. It is that each part of our exploration allows us to see in the gospel what we could not have seen before. So the simplicity of what is profound already just becomes more and more and more. It's just always more. We have been journeying, as many of you know, uh, since uh, 06 through the chronological historical unpacking of the scriptures from Genesis onward. We are currently exploring, just began our exploration of the letter Paul is writing to Timothy while he is in Ephesus uh, with a task from Paul to confront some things in Ephesus and set some things right. So we are in that letter, but that letter is not one we pull uh, from the totality of scripture and say, this one looks like a neat letter to do. Uh, it is the unfolding story of the gospel in the wondrous sense of what has been a progressive journey for all of us as pilgrims who have journeyed from Genesis onward. I, I think about the journey through the Old Testament and how many times things of the gospel became apparent and clear through the stories of the Old Testament, uh, through the journey of the Old Testament, where we were able to get a greater view of the, of the horror and totality of death, the, the weightiness of legalism, the terror of lawlessness, the, 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 the bent of the enemy to kill, steal, and destroy, and, and to watch humanity in its mess only so that the gospel in its rescue would elevate to a point beyond imagination. And then our journey uh, through even Paul's writings. I mean, uh, uh, a letter of Galatians uh, having the gospel inform legalism, uh, a, a letter of First uh, and Second Corinthians having the gospel inform lawlessness, uh, uh, a letter uh, like Colossians has, having the, the gospel inform the realities of daily life, uh, letters like First uh, and Second Thessalonians, the gospel informing suffering. And so we watch as we explore each letter, as we explore each new part of the scripture, we watch the simplicity of the gospel that could become ordinary if all it was, was that simplicity. We watch it expand and we start realizing it sets us free from the weight of legalism, sets us free from the terror of lawlessness, sets us free from the, the purposeless nature of pain and suffering. Just, it just redeems and redeems and redeems. And so now here we are, now here we are, as Paul, having 
uh, been inspired and led by the Holy Spirit has now written letters for decades into contexts where the gospel informed certain things. He is now writing a letter in which he will weave all of what he has cumulatively collected in his understanding over all those letters into a letter for the church through the leader of the church, Timothy, to say, church, church, here is how you are to live, to behave as the household of God. If you remember two weeks ago when we entered into 1 Timothy and we started with context uh, in 1 Timothy, um, uh, that he states that to Timothy. He, he says to Timothy, I'm, I'm writing you this letter uh, so that though I'm intending to come, if I don't get there quickly, you would know how to teach the church to live as the household of God, to behave. And, and he's writing this letter to Timothy, if you remember from two weeks ago, because he left Timothy in Ephesus on his way back to Rome, where he's now imprisoned again, to specifically confront something very particular a group of teachers in the church in Ephesus who were teaching false doctrine, false truths. They were teaching things that were not true and they were using scripture to teach it. And he said, you got to go in there and you got to put a stop to that because it is terribly dangerous. So th that is the reason for Timothy being in Ephesus. The reason for the letter going is to empower Timothy to know how to course correct that and to remind Timothy that I'm giving you in this letter what the gospel would tell us as a people is how we are to live. Why? Why all of this? The, the question would become, would it not, that um, uh, we, we now ask, to what end should we behave rightly? Because if the purpose of this letter is to teach us to behave rightly as the people of God, is the end goal, the aim to behave rightly? Is that what this is all about? Is that what the journey with Jesus is about? To learn to behave rightly. And Paul goes, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm sending you this so that you can learn to behave rightly because when you behave rightly, church, something happens that affords us to live in our purpose and to attain our aim, our goal, our calling. And what is that calling? As we the first week entered into the context of 1 Timothy historically and the journey of Paul and Timothy and Ephesus and all of that, the second week, last week, Brady came and he walked us into 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. And we sat there in that verse because in that verse is captured the totality of the aim of all of this. The aim of everything we will travel through in 1 Timothy, uh, every course correction, every encouragement, every thing of guarding this and doing this, every behavior will all return to this singular aim, this aim. And what is that aim? If you remember, if you were here last week, here is what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. And he says this to Timothy. The aim of our charge, this letter, everything you will come to this church with and confront, change, shape, and bring is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So what is the aim of the people of God, the aim of the church? How are we to be ambassadors of Christ? Our aim is love. Our aim is love. And we know this because God was very clear. Jesus on the planet was very clear when asked, and Brady said this last week, uh, man, what's this all about? And he's like, look, if you wrap it all together, here's what it boils down to. You, the people of God, are to live your life in a progressively more uh, zealous and clear way of loving God with all of yourself, loving God well, loving God rightly, loving God fully, loving each other, the followers of Jesus in a way that would demonstrate to the world what it looks like when a collective people follow Jesus collectively. They will know we follow Jesus by our love for each other. This is not the love of the neighbor, the world, yet it is the love we have for each other, unique and, and profound, so that the world will watch us love God and watch us love each other and say, a people that love this way, this is something utterly unworldly, incredible, amazing. And then our calling to love our neighbor, the world, to love the world with the love of Jesus. This is our aim. 
and what Paul is going to do as he writes to Timothy and he walks us now through these necessary realities that we've put out in 1 Timothy that's in our graphic that you can go and listen two weeks ago to the podcast and catch all that. These themes in this book, they are all going to be themes that lead us to a particular urgency or behavior, a guarding of something, a doing of something, but always with the intent that in doing so, we will be able to love well. And if we don't do these things, then we cannot love well. Because what is the aim? Love, but not just any kind of love. Whose love? God's love. We love rightly. We love God's way. We love the way he loves. We do not love simply in whichever way we see fit is loving. Because oftentimes if we love in the way we think is loving and it does not align with what God defines as what is right and good and true, then we are often misguided and what we believe is love is actually loveless. And so... That is what we are walking into. Another letter that will take this beauty of the gospel and show us another thing in it, another, like a diamond, another color, another perspective, another beauty that we will go, oh, I thought I was in awe of the gospel. I thought I knew its depths. I thought I understood it. And now there is more. There is more. And like I've said many times, when we get to the end of scripture of the New Testament, hopefully 10 years or so from now, Um, man, if we would be given just enough life to do it one more time, maybe. Because there is no end to what we might discover of the gospel. So what what is Paul gonna begin with? As Paul opens this letter with Timothy now, and he's, he's saying to Timothy, okay, the aim is love. I'm writing you so that you, the household, can behave rightly so that you can love well. So let us begin. What is ultimately the starting point to make sure that if this thing is in place, then we begin our journey to be a people who will behave rightly and a people therefore in behaving rightly that will love well. And so let us explore. Uh, Open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter one. We are gonna start in verse three, right after the greeting. If you have the little 1 Timothy books uh, with the stuff notes in the side, now's a good time to open it because we're gonna roll and we're gonna roll fast. Uh, And we're gonna explore what? God is showing us uh, as he inspired Paul to tell Timothy to tell the church in Ephesus. Verse three, chapter one, first Timothy. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So, there it is. When, when I, I say to you guys, uh, we know that Timothy is there with a the charge to uh, confront false teachers. We don't make that stuff up here at Mosaic. We don't go, I, I think that's why he was there. It's because we read it in the actual Bible. It's, it's beautiful, isn't it? Like so, so many of these details, Paul's just like, well, I, I just, I'll just tell you why he's there. So he reminds Timothy of this calling. So we know that Paul is now gonna say, okay, confronting false teaching with truth is going to be critical to all these things we want to do. Now, look what he does. He says this, not, um, not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So now Paul is going to begin to describe to Timothy what it is that is the cause of them ultimately landing on truths that are false. And this becomes really important for us as a church because it would be one thing for Paul to say to Timothy, make sure whenever there's false teachings that you confront them. But the question would become, how would we know when we are engaging in things in the stewardship of God's word that would lead us to extract truths that are false? What Paul's gonna do for us in this passage as we are as a church trying to say, Paul, what should we take seriously and urgently in order to behave rightly, in order to love God well, each other well, and people well, in order to be great ambassadors of your kingdom, in order to see light, life, and freedom uh, be uh, pushing back the gates of hell. Well, what do we do? Paul's gonna say, okay, first of all, first of all, listen up, church, take truth seriously. 
be vigilant for false teachings, for false assumptions and for speculations. And he's gonna say this to Timothy. There are people in the church in Ephesus that have entered into scripture and they have become enamored with details in the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the scripture, the Old Testament, and they are pulling from these things speculations about the genealogies. And then they are going to take those speculations and they're gonna bring them to the table. And he says, this is not a good stewardship of God's word. So what he's beginning to show us is that as a church, if we wanna be a church that is going to love well, behave well, and be the household of God in a manner worthy of the gospel, we need to be able to say stewarding the word of God, entering it and studying it rightly and accurately, extracting from it what is its truth and not shaping its truth for our own uh, uh, desires is going to be critical to remain the church, right? And the way that these people are missing the boat on that is that they are speculating about things that are details in the Old Testament that have nothing to do with their knowledge and understanding of the whole of the Old Testament. You said that was a lot for you to say. Did you extract all that from that? No, 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 it's coming. We're gonna get to another verse and then it'll tell us all that. I'm getting ahead of myself here. But what we are gaining from this right now is we want to be a people that steward God's word really well, right? And not badly. Well, how do we do that? Take a look. Now, pause here for a second and be like, oh, I thought we were just gonna take a look at how to steward God's word rightly. We are, but before we do, this is the moment that becomes really cool because now we're in verse five and verse five isn't about stewarding the word of God, is it? What's verse five about? Love, the aim, right? So look what he does. Right after he said this, uh, man, you need to confront these people. They're not stewarding God's word rightly. Uh, you need to do this. The aim of our charge, he says, verse five, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So Paul now, inspired by the Holy Spirit, intricately ties together the idea of our aim in loving well to the idea that we cannot compromise truth. Do you see that he, he made them inseparable? This is critical because what he's going to begin to do, not only through this letter, but others, and what he has already done is this, that we need to understand that in order to love well and love in a manner that is of the kingdom of God for the light, life, and freedom that God will bring, it is a requirement that we love through the truth of God because truth oftentimes feels like it is opposed to love. Why? Because truth draws lines in the sand. Truth defines for you what is true, doesn't give you room to define for yourself what is true. We don't like truth. You're like, no, I love, I love truth. Well, yeah, you love truth. That's wonderful. So do I. Until it violates whatever it is I feel is either true or mine. Even in my study of scripture over the years, how many times I've encountered a truth of scripture and I've had to spend a year and a half or five years wrestling with that truth. And like, if that's true, what kind of a God are you? <laughs> Have you never experienced that? Have you never read anything in scripture and gone, whoa, I can't follow a God like this. Well, if you haven't, welcome, I have. And then I've got to quietly enter into expanding and understanding what does that mean? Not changing it, just saying, if that is true, how on earth do I reconcile that? What does all that mean? Much of what truth often does is it puts something in front of you and said, this is true, like it or not. And when it's an or not, then it immediately feels like we're not loving. So what Paul's saying here is, know this, church, if you're gonna love well, love each other well, love the world well, you're gonna to have to do it within the bounds of my truth. And in order to have my truth measure what is love, you're going to need to steward my word well and study it well so that you can understand its truth without speculation. He's setting us up here to say that if we're gonna be the church, that is the household of God, we're gonna to need to be a church committed to holding fast to truth and not just holding fast to it. But before we can hold fast to truth, what do we actually have to do? 
We have to study it and know it. Okay, so you see the tie there of love and truth now. We're kind of getting that space like, oh, this is getting tricky. It's getting tricky. How do I compassion, love, and truth challenge? Wow, let's see where this goes. Certain persons, verse six, by swerving from these, what are these? Uh, These three things, a pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith, have wandered away into vain discussion, (laughs) desiring to be teachers of the law. So let's just stop there for a second. So now he's starting to describe these people and he's saying some things about these people's character, okay? He's gonna name two of them. A little later on, we'll get there in a second but there's more than two of them. He's, he names the two to kind of say, it's, it's that group, right? Here's what he's saying about them. He's just said, that part of the reason why they have become a people that are now looking for these mysterious and intriguing things in the Torah, pulling them out and then making speculation about them and then asserting them as truths leading to the people behaving in ways that are not of the gospel. Did you catch all that? Because what, we don't know exactly what the false teachings were, but based on what the rest of First Timothy is going to write in terms of where things are going wrong, we do know that part of the consequence of these false teachings is a false way of life that the church and people in uh, the, the church and the people in the church in Ephesus were living, revolving around marriage and revolving around eating certain foods and revolving. Does that sound familiar? Revolving around behaving. Legalism was starting to expand back in, and they were using the law and their speculations about interesting things to do that. So here's what he's saying: these people are speculating and bringing interesting things so that the people will be enamored. They're tickling the ears with fun and exciting mysteries of the word of God, right? Because, he says, they have abandoned the desire of a pure heart and a a strong faith, and they are now aspiring to be teachers of importance. Do you hear him say that? This is a a neat little calling for all of us to say, uh, If at some point your need to have interesting information that will cause people to walk out and say, isn't he or she brilliant? Who would have ever seen that the angels had one wing out of that verse? I've actually heard that preached before, FYI. We look for the mysteries, we look for the wonders, we bring them to the table, we speculate, and suddenly these teachers are the most brilliant. And what Paul's saying is, once the heart of these people have been bent on the need to be accepted and embraced as teachers. They are now in pursuit of interesting information. They are not in pursuit of truth. Because a teacher who aspires to be a teacher for the sake of being a teacher, for the sake of importance, is not going to offend you because then you won't like them. They're going to to find ways to keep you interested and engaged in the mysterious speculations of scripture. So Paul's saying, man, once there, that leads to a dangerous track and Ephesus, the church, has allowed this process to become part of its teaching. We let people get around, we let people speculate about scripture, and then we discuss it and discuss it and discuss it. And he says it, you know, useless discussions going on. And then we come and we lead the people into behaviors that aren't even scriptural. Look what he says about this. He says, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they are making confident assertions. The book of First Timothy begins with a call to the people of God, the household of God to say that if you are gonna be a people that meets the calling, the purpose, the aim of what the people of God were made for, to love, it's about love, but to love rightly, you're going to need to be passionate about guarding sound doctrine. You need to be passionate about stewarding the word of God rightly and not allowing for anyone in your midst that is aspiring or is engaged in teaching to be the kind of people that are engaged in studying the word of God, but don't actually understand it or know it. This is not about entering the word of God so that we can read something and have a mysterious move of the spirit tell us mysterious things about what the passage actually says. 
This is a word of God given with logic and concrete and context. And if studied rightly and deeply, it becomes clear. And the spirit of God uses his truth and clarity to profoundly, supernaturally speak to us, change us, transform us, and show us great and unsearchable things we do not know. But the great and unsearchable things are not born out of our speculation when we are entering the word of God without appropriate knowledge of its context. What Paul just said is these people that you need to confront, the reason they can speculate because they're trying to find mysteries is because they wanna be cool, fun little teachers, but the truth is they have no idea what they're reading and they have no idea what they're saying. And I would, I would caution me and I would caution you that when we are listening to communicators and teachers, which we live in a culture with a plethora available to us that are inspirational and wondrous, and they say wonderful and neat, mysterious, speculatory things about God's word that sound compelling and wondrous, be sure that you know whether they are in fact a people or a teacher that has the history and knowledge to be able to say, I understand what that is. And in order to do that, we're gonna get ready here. You need to actually grow and understand and dig into the word of God. Okay, so take a look at this. The next verse says, now we know that the law is good. Now that's for next week. So we're not gonna to touch that right now. We're gonna skip from there and jump down to verse 18 because Paul is gonna write this little paragraph now here about the law being good. And it's not about the law. The law is not the problem. The Torah is not the problem. The Old Testament's not the problem. It's the it's the uneducated, uh, unstudied speculation of things badly stewarding the word of God. Who's the problem? The false teacher's the problem, not, not the law, right? But before he gets to that, or after he gets to that, he's gonna circle back to the teachers. And today is about these teachers and about what we need to firmly hold to as a church if we're gonna love rightly. Look at verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage a good warfare. So he's now saying to Timothy, I understand that as you enter the church in Ephesus, these truths have been embraced by the church in Ephesus. These teachers are honored by the church in Ephesus and these teachers feel quite good about themselves. They are also older than you, they have history. So when you confront them, how's that gonna go? Not gonna go so well. And what's the first thing they're gonna say to you? Who are you as a 40 year old to tell us 70 year olds what to do? You don't have any time under your belt. You don't have any experience. We got wisdom, age is wisdom. And there is some truth to that, don't get me wrong. But what Paul is gonna say to Timothy at another point in this letter is don't let them look down on you just because they say you're young. This isn't about age as much as it is about the good stewardship of the word of God and the time it has taken to study the word of God. So yes, when you are 11, I can bring age to the table because you haven't had the time to dig into this. But if a 40 year old has spent uh, two decades digging into this and a 70 year old is speculating, go with the 40 year old. But if the 70 year old has spent five decades digging into this, pay close attention to the 70 year old. It's not about age, it's about the stewardship and accuracy and study and, and commitment to the truths of the word of God, not trying to make it whatever we want it to be, but to find out what it says so we can conform to it. And so he says, listen, listen, these folks, this is a war you are waging. I, I want you to pay attention to this. How seriously does Paul take the issue of guarding right doctrine and truth and the stewardship of God's word in a church? What is the word he uses that Timothy should know he's gonna go do in order to make this right? War. Paul is not giving Timothy any room here to say, give it a try. And um, you know, if after some discussion, you feel like maybe there's some room for these folks. You know, you could teach, you could teach like one perspective of the word of God and then they could teach their speculations. And you know, and, and, you know if, they, if it doesn't go so well, he's like, this this matters so much to the church being the church that this is going to be a war. And you, Timothy, through prophecy, through laying on of hands, through, through the fanning into flame, the gift in you, he's, Paul uses different things at different times with Timothy, you are well equipped for this. I wouldn't have left you there if I didn't think you could pull it off, buddy. 
What a lovely thing for the mentor to say, right? You don't need me there. You got this because you've got the spirit of God in you and you know the truth of God well. So what he's saying is when we come to confront false teaching, we come by the power of the spirit and we come with the knowledge and good stewardship of the word, which Timothy had because who was he mentored by for now many, many years? Paul, and who in this time in history probably had a better handle on the totality of the word of God than any other human on planet earth? Paul. So when Paul says, you don't know what you're talking about, you don't even know what you're reading, he ain't joking. He's like, I do, and Timothy does. So Timothy, go to war on this one because it matters that much. And look what he says next. Holding faith and a good um, conscience by reflecting on this. Some have made shipwreck of their faith among whom is Hymenus and Alexander, who I have handed, watch this now, watch this now. I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. (laughs) Yeah, I just heard someone say, yikes. That's the least of it. Yikes! This is Paul's attitude toward us speculating about God's word without the right uh, knowledge and understanding and then teaching in those speculations. Here's here's Paul's attitude toward that. That would be blaspheme, uh, blasphemy against God, and I'm going to hand you over to Satan so that you will learn not to do that anymore. Does that sound pretty serious to you? That sounds pretty serious to me. And he says to Timothy, wage war on this. Why? Because understanding the word of God, discovering the truths that are in the word of God, and then holding to those truths, even when they do not meet our particular sensitivities or our particular thoughts on what truth is, that is what the people of God are called as a starting point to do. Because, listen carefully now, we cannot and will not ever love God well and rightly, love each other well and rightly, or love the world well and rightly if we compromise the truth of God. The truth of God, understanding it, studying it, and holding to it, is a necessary component for us to be a church that loves well. It seems odd, doesn't it? Because especially in cultural contexts like ours, it seems like holding to the truths of God or not being given allowance for those truths to expand and shape into other truths by stopping the deep study of context, we would better love our culture and people because their truths are more and more opposed to what God's truths are. And when we bring God's truths to their truths, they experience that as hatred, not love. So we are tempted to try and navigate how to bring those truths either in a different way or not bring them at all and give room and leniency for a culture because what is the harm anyway? And what he is saying here is once truth is compromised or truth is not held fast to, then love is not possible as far as a godly love is concerned. And if it's not a godly love, it's not love at all. So hear me now. We do not love each other and we do not love our culture well if we compromise truth in order to love them. If you are doing something or living in something or thinking something or a part of something and there's a truth of God that I need to bring to you that is not going to be something you want to hear, I do not love you by not bringing that to you. I hate you. And when our culture is redefining all sorts of things, it is not loving for us to ignore the truths of God in order to maintain a reputation of compassion. Now, let me get to this for a second. Can we love rightly and love well without stewarding the word of God well and having truth come from that stewardship and holding to that truth? Can we love rightly without truth? No. No. But can we have truth and still not love rightly? Yes. Pay close attention now. Having truth, knowing truth, and holding to truth does not guarantee that you will love well. How do we know this? 
Brady said it last week. He said 25 years after this letter goes to Timothy and Timothy brings this letter to the church in Ephesus and Timothy charges the church in Ephesus with being uncompromising in their commitment to uh, right doctrine and eliminating false teachers. 25 years after that, Jesus writes this church a letter through John. And the letter begins with a commendation, an excitement. Uh, well done, church. Here's what he says. You guys did so well. You don't have any false teachers anymore. You don't tolerate false doctrine. You hold to truth like nobody's business. I mean, if you want to find a church that, I mean, imagine Jesus, Jesus telling John, go give this letter to the church in Ephesus. And his first little thing is like, man, as far as churches with truth goes, you top of the line, man. I mean, I'd, I'd come to your church and whatever I hear there, it doesn't include false teaching. It includes the rightness and truth of God. He says, but I hold this against you. And you, you, you've lost your first love. There is a possibility. And actually, let me just say this. It is often true that once a church is stirred up and spurred on and captivated and inspired to hold to truth as it should. You get that? Along the way, the point starts becoming truth. And the point isn't love anymore. Along the way, our passion for truth actually becomes the very thing that holds us back from living in that truth in a manner that is enabling us to love well. We abandon compassion because the only thing we want is for that person to know what is right and good. We don't really care that it transforms. And I will tell you that in our cultural context, this is something that if we're going to be a church that is deeply committed to right doctrine and truth, which we are, that is where we're going to have to watch ourselves. An arrogant holding on to truth for the sake of rightness and truth is not love, but not to hold with absolute uncompromising passion to right doctrine and truth means we cannot ever love rightly. So how passionate do we need to be about sound doctrine? Extremely. Keep going. Extremely, very, without compromise. It's got to be a deep and abiding passion. Anything that is not right truth founded in scripture needs to be immediately like, ah! And yet we must, with all that zeal and passion, always remember, why? Why are we doing this? So that we would live rightly in a manner worthy of the gospel. Why? Why would we behave rightly? So that the aim would be realized and we would what? Love well. The most loving thing we can do for each other is to compel, inspire, challenge, exhort, shove each other toward Jesus especially when you're not doing it yourself. But when you have forgotten the gospel in some form or you have found yourself enamored by other things, when I bring to you the challenge to go back to Jesus is not gonna feel like love, but it is in fact the most loving thing to do. And our culture more than ever needs us as the church to be a stable, immovable force of truth. Some of the false doctrines that we will encounter will come from within the church itself. And I don't mean this church specifically, uh, but the church as a whole. We have to be vigilant, people, uh, for watching for when the church, uh, compelling communicators in the church, compelling leaders in the church, compelling voices in the church begin to deviate from a absolute commitment to understanding the word of God. Theologies like prosperity theology or theologies like the red letter theologies where the only thing that matters is the words of Jesus and everything else is kind of supplementary material that doesn't really matter. The theologies that say the Old Testament is no longer relevant, all these and many, many others. Yes, we need to be careful of those. We need to watch for them. And if they enter in here, we need to stand firmly on what we know and understand and keep studying. But I will tell you this. I don't think our biggest challenge, our biggest problem is going to be paying attention to and unraveling false doctrines that come from within the theological uh, circles of the church. You know where our trouble is going to come in? It is the false teachings coming from our culture itself. And I'll tell you why. Because the teachings the culture is beginning to shape for us are compelling, are they not? If you're like, no, they are, they're stupid. <laughs> Wonderful, I'm so thrilled for you. 
but they feel compelling to me. When the culture redefines what perhaps a loving relationship looks like. And then rightly two humans who are like me, uh, experiencing the wonder of love. And the culture says to me, how can you say that this isn't good and right? That feels compelling to me. I agree, that's a very difficult question and I don't quite know what to do with that. And my temptation is that since the culture holds to a truth, this is one of a hundred I could bring to the table, that feels compelling and good and right. It seems right. I, I've seen on social media, how many times I've seen on social media lately, Christians should remember that Jesus called them to accept everyone. I'm like, is that true? Mm, difficult, isn't it? <laughs> you guys like, no, yes, no, I don't know. And the, the real answer is yes, but not in the way that the culture is trying to make it mean. Because they're saying to love someone is to let them be whatever, whomever, however they want. That is love. And God says that is hatred if being like Jesus is life. Because then I'm not trying to make you like me. I'm trying to make me like Jesus and you like Jesus. And if we're not, it is my loving act towards you to call you into a life that he says is the best life for me and you. And in a culture that is redefining identity, redefining marriage, redefining family, redefining truth, redefining justice, redefining goodness, redefining, I mean, I, I can just go on and on. We are in a cultural moment that we've been in for about 30 or 40 years where our culture is literally bent on redefining everything. And we as a church are going to be tempted in this cultural moment over the next 10 years to either compromise what we know we have studied diligently or to not compromise it, but to remain silent on it because we don't want to hold fast to it because our reputation and even our persecution and suffering might be full. Timothy, this letter, 1 Timothy, it was written profoundly for a time in history for the church in Ephesus, but it is equally written profoundly for our moment as a church. And there are many other things that First Timothy will call us into of how we love well that will match the feelings we want to be able to love our culture well. But the first one that Paul brings to the table is this. No right truth, no right love. No right truth, no right love. And the way you miss truth, this is the final piece to this, so track with me for this last two minutes because this becomes critical. The way you make sure you have right truth is that you take the time to study the scriptures in its totality, whether that takes decades, so that you are not jumping into mysterious things in scripture without understanding what you're reading, speculating about them, and then teaching them. Now you say, well, then I can never study because where do you start? I'm saying, listen, what was the last thing I said in that sentence? And then teaching them. That's the critical piece. You and I have the freedom to explore scripture as a student for as long as we need wrestling, making mistakes, doing all of that. But the second you aspire to teach what you are learning, understand you step into a wholeheartedly different category. The scripture speaks to that. That's why Paul was not saying, go to the church in Ephesus and tell everyone in the church they're speculating about stuff they need to stop. He said, confront the what? The teachers, because they're teaching this stuff. God takes teaching pretty seriously. I have the privilege uh, to teach in different occasions uh, at YWAM and Acts 29 and other places to young men and women who are aspiring to be preachers and teachers of the word. And whenever I get that opportunity, like help us understand how we can study rightly. I always kind of start those times this way. Okay, so I'm so thrilled you all are inspiring to, uh, aspiring to be teachers. That's just absolutely wonderful uh, and very, very exciting. So if you're gonna do that, you need to take the next decade or so and really be very, very diligent in studying this. And any parts you're not certain of, don't teach them until you're absolutely certain of them. T teach the parts you're certain of until you're certain of other parts. Take your time and here's why. Because God kind of said it this way. He said, don't all inspire, uh, aspire to be teachers because if you do, and then you don't steward my word well, you don't study diligently, and you teach stuff you're speculating about, it would be better for you, this is in the Bible, to tie a rope around your neck, tie a rock to the other side of the rope, and drown yourself.
I do love what I do. I do love the calling I have. But that verse sits in my head every week. Every single week. In fact, every single time I ever teach out of this sacred, wondrous thing that is beyond me, that verse sits. And God says, make sure that if you're going to teach, you teach what you have studied and do not speculate about stuff. Understand its context, dig deeply into it. And that is why it has been such a joy for me that we are now at this stage in our journey, 16 years into traveling through scripture, because the amount of context God has allowed me to experience over 16 years is such breadth and such depth and such wonder that I feel like I, when I enter scripture, I'm like, it's hard to go wrong when you just have the scope. Doesn't mean I can't, but I do want you to know for all of us, we need to be a church that takes deadly seriously the study of God's word. Please, I beg of you all, I beg of you, if we're gonna be the church we wanna be in the culture uh, that we are in to meet them with the love of Jesus in a manner that is compassionate and beautiful and wondrous and is transformative, I beg of you, be a people that takes the time to study the word of God. Because I will tell you this, this is not true of all of you, but it's true of many, because it's true of us as a culture, a Christian culture in America. We are a shortcut culture, which means that we have habitually become a people that try to find the fastest, quickest way of extracting from God's word the inspiration we need for the day. And we do not take the time to study because decades feels too long. Minutes feels more doable. If you are a person who extracts from a devotional a thought, there's nothing wrong with that. So if you're here like, was that wrong? No, but if that's all you do, then yes then you are in danger of being a person that the word of God will become to you a speculation. What we ought to do as a people is take the time to deeply study the word of God for ourselves in community like this and have devotional. Both are appropriate, both are different, but one without the other lacks in the beauty of the word of God. Church, Paul says, to Timothy, to tell Ephesus, to tell us. Church, steward the word of God rightly. Study it carefully. Be sure that you understand what you're looking at. And if you don't, keep digging until you do. Context will answer much of that. Guard sound doctrine. Because without it, we cannot love well. We cannot even love rightly. And we are the beacon for love. I just came back from Greece this last week, my wife and I got to go there with her dad and sister and brother-in-law. And uh, it was a wonderful trip and we were in Athens. And there's this street in Athens where the king's temple sits, uh, whatever, palace, sorry, palace, temple, palace, whatever, the king's palace. And there's this big, giant, wide road that runs from the front of the palace as far as you can see. And we're on this road on a little food tour. And the lady that's doing the food tour says, uh, yeah, this is the road that they built so that the carriage uh, would come from as far as the eye could see with the king and queen on it. And then everyone would be like, whoa, here comes the king and queen. And then there was this little church uh, from Byzantine times that was in the middle of where this road was gonna be. And so uh, about, a, I don't know, a hundred years or so ago when they were building this road, they're like, we'll just tear the church down. And the people were like, uh, no, no, you're not. Like, th this is a beacon for where we come and we worship God. And so like, okay, we won't tear it down. We'll just move it brick by brick. And they were like, uh, no, not so much. No, no, no. It's staying right here. You can pick a, a different path for your road. Well, they didn't want to do that because they'd already built the palace. So the road, now when you look at it in Athens, you can go and look. It goes down when it hits the church. It splits, goes around the church, and then it keeps going. But once you're behind the church, you can't see the king and queen anymore. So you can only see the king and queen for the last like little bit. So the whole idea of like, you see them from way there. God kind of just stood right in the middle of that and said, well, why don't you watch me on most of their journey? And then when they pass me by, by the time you see them, you'll be like, yeah, they had to come around me. <laughs> it was a profound moment for me. I was standing on that road and I'm, I thought to myself, this is who we need to be as a church. Not a stubborn building in the middle of a road that won't move because we want our space but a beacon of truth and stability that says to the culture, we know that you are gonna bend and change and shape and all that, but what you need more than anything else is a people that know the truths of God, that love him and understand his love for you, and a people that with deep compassion will have an uncompromising commitment to his truth 
because that's the most loving thing we can do for our culture, for each other, and for the way we love God. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your incredible love for us and the giant call on our lives as a people of God, as a household of God, to hold fast to sound doctrine, to be committed to studying the word of God deeply as long as it would take us, to never speculate about things we do not yet understand in your word, but to wait until we have researched and dug and studied enough and your spirit has revealed to us supernaturally what it is that we see through our study and our clarity. Then and then only may we begin the journey of teaching. So God, as you have given us the tremendous privilege here at Mosaic to travel through your word so collectively over 16 years now, and as we still have many wondrous adventures to travel through books yet to come that will reveal greater wonder and beauty of the simple gospel we already know, making it more than we thought it was, would you give us the commitment as leaders in this church, as elders in this church, to continue to strive as we've been striving, to wrestle with doctrine, to study the word, to engage in the cultural realities with careful, meticulous study of how the gospel informs us to engage with them, not how we feel we should engage to have right or good reputation. Would you give our people in this place a new zeal and passion for a deeper study of your word? so that it's not just the leaders in this church that can guard sound doctrine in this place, but it is us collectively. And may you help us as a church facilitate more and more opportunities for these people in this room to have the space to engage in places where they can study, understand, dig, explore, go on pilgrimage through the word of God. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is life and by your spirit, you make it so. Give us courage and wisdom and compassion as we enter one another's lives and the lives of this culture on your behalf to show them love in the way that truth calls us to. May we never be a church that forgets that it's not about rightness or truth, but about love. And may we never be a church that forgets that without truth and rightness, we cannot love. May we always live by your spirit in both. We love you, Jesus.